For several summers of my childhood, my father became a beekeeper. While we didn't have a yard big enough to host the beehives, some good friends did. So many summer nights after my father came home from work, we would quickly eat dinner and then head over to their property to check on the beehives. At first, I was afraid of the bees and the beehives, especially of the smoke-filled canisters, the large white beekeeping suits, and hats with all that netting that had to be worn while going out to check on the beehives. But by the end of the summer, the memories of fear subsided and were more about watching while large white frames were lifted out of each of the hives, all filled with honeycomb, and then watch them spin around in the extractor until the honey poured out. And the reward of that summer? The rows and rows of mason jars of honey sitting on a windowsill at our friend's home after long days of harvesting all the hives. And those summer days after harvesting were spent eating that honey on delicious homemade bread. It still makes my mouth water. I remember nights of warm bread, butter, and honey for dinner, and they were some of my favorites. It tasted like heaven. Recently, I learned that each honeybee contributes approximately one-twelfth of a teaspoon of honey in its lifetime, which is such an incredible fact. One bee spends its whole lifetime making one-twelfth of a teaspoon of honey for the entire hive. It seems so little. It seems so insignificant. But it is absolutely not. It takes each individual bee's contribution to make the hive work. Most hives range from about 10,000 to 60,000 bees all working together to accomplish the purpose of making honey. The bees of the hive depend on each other. They need each other. And without every single one-twelfth of a teaspoon of honey, the hive would not function or produce anything at all. I love that lesson of the honeybees. I love the imagery of the fact that it takes a hive of about 60,000 bees all working together at the endless cycle of pollinating, gathering nectar, and then condensing that nectar into honey to create such an impressive product as the end result of honey. I love the metaphor that each bee with its one-twelfth of a teaspoon of honey is vitally important to that hive, and each bee has a place and a purpose in working together to create something greater together than each individual could produce. We can learn a lot from honeybees. This is Elizabeth and Liz from Simple Simon and & Company, and you are listening to Stitched. Today's episode is sponsored by Baby Lock. In the early 19th century, quilt making was flourishing. It had been brought to the plains of America by early settlers who carried the tradition over from Europe, and it became a necessity for everyday life on the frontier. Quilts were a symbol of protection. They were used not only as bedding, but also as covers for doors and windows, and in some cases even to barter and pay bills among the early pioneers. And along with the flourishing of quilt making, another tradition came into fashion— the quilting bee. Now, quilting bees were not always known as quilting bees. In the beginning, they were often called quilting parties or quilt ends. And although historians can't put a finger on exactly how quilting bees started, we do know that life on the frontier was hard work, and many aspects of life were quite difficult for each individual family to do on their own. So the spirit of the pioneers included helping others around them and in turn, receiving that same help from others as well. 
Barn raisings were an event that were often held with the spirit of pioneering. Many men, women, and children would gather to build and raise the walls of barns and homes in the matter of a single day. This idea of many hands working together was not new to the pioneers, and quilting felt right into this mind frame as well. So, quilting parties, just like the idea of barn raisings, were born. Since all quilts at that time were hand-pieced, many months of work went into creating a single quilt top. And after it was done, a frontier woman would send out word that she had a quilt top ready and invite women from all over to come to her home to quilt the quilt together. Although many descriptions of quilting bees lead one to believe that they only happened in summer months, quilting bees were held year-round and were especially important when a life event was happening. Many would gather in anticipation for a wedding quilt that was to be made when community members were courting or betrothed. A journal entry from an early pioneer woman described her own quilting bee as a small and simple gathering where she would take apart the bed in her home to make room for four ladder back chairs and the boards that were placed in the back rungs of those chairs, which would then have the quilt tied to the pegs on top of those boards. The host herself would not take part in the quilting portion of the gathering, as she would be in the other room preparing food for the women and husbands and children that were to gather and eat after the quilt had been finished. In this entry, she described her gathering as small and simple, because only four women could fit behind the four sides of the quilt, as cabins were small, and the quilt itself filled nearly corner to corner her entire room. Small and simple. But the efforts of those women who worked quickly and masterfully with what they had, where they were at, to quilt a quilt in one day is truly remarkable. Today's episode is sponsored by Baby Lock. With machines starting at $99 and classes and educational events, my Baby Lock retailer always has me covered. Whether I'm working on a sewing, serging, quilting, or embroidery project, I know I can visit my local Baby Lock retailer for all my sewing needs. By the late 1800s, as with other aspects of everyday life, quilting bees had turned into more of a social affair rather than one of necessity. The Ladies' Home Journal from 1897 recounts a quilting bee invitation where... A nice little becurled girl in a clean pinafore knocks at the door and repeats demurely her well-coined lesson. Mother sends her compliments and would be happy to have you come to her quilting bee this afternoon. These turn-of-the-century quilting bees included tea parties and refreshments that were well-planned, meticulously prepared, and royally served. And long gone were the days of men, women, and children gathering after for a meal together— These quilting bees consisted more of ladies dressed up in their finest apparel, donned with hats and gloves, with the who's who of society. The sociality was much more important than the actual quilting itself. These were altogether lavish parties of the time. Quilting bees were even advertised in the social sections of local newspapers and read much like the gossip columns or entertainment magazines of our day. They included who attended what they were wearing, what games they played, and most importantly, what food was served. 
One such newspaper article recounted such a social occasion of a southern quilting bee in the middle of a scorching July. It read, Mrs. White had a tea which will go down in the history of the village. Everybody wondered how she and Brahma had managed to do so much in that terrible heat. There were seven kinds of cakes besides donuts, cookies, and short gingerbread. There were five kinds of pie and cup custards, hot biscuits, cold bread, preserves, cold ham, and tongue. Can you imagine cooking all that for one single quilting bee? Many early women authors, including Eliza Calvert Hall, romanticized these gatherings and made them even more popular amongst middle-class women. They were a time of social celebrations and a chance for women to catch up on what was really happening around town. Also during the same time period of quilting bees turning into social engagements, women began to form clubs and charity organizations that centered around quilting bees. These bees were organized to make and quilt quilts for children's hospitals, war efforts, and local orphanages. The quilting clubs closely resembled quilting guilds of our day, had voted in presidents, secretaries, and bylaws that were strictly abided by. There are even photographs of quilting bees that have all the women wearing the same Victorian blouses along with A-line skirts and neckties that they used as their quilting uniforms. These 20th century bees became a symbol of women working together to create hundreds of quilts for those in need. Whether it was the early simple quilting bees of the pioneer women or the lavish quilting bees and clubs of later times, the purpose was always the same. It was about the gathering and community of women who could do so much more together than they could individually. I recently had the opportunity to take part in a modern quilting bee. Our church group has about 15 girls that are graduating from high school this year, and we decided to make each one of them a quilt to take with them on their journeys that are ahead of them after high school graduation. So we set up our church gym with donated quilt frames and invited all of the girls and women to come and help tie quilts for our high school seniors. We began with a lesson on quilt tying and then divided up into three groups to get three lap quilts tied that evening. Some things didn't go according to plan, but we made it work, and as the night progressed, I looked around to see that the quilting bee was exactly as it was supposed to be. Girls and women chatting and laughing, talking about different things that would have never brought them together before, and even seeing girls both above and below the quilt sandwich tag-team tying to tie knots into the layers of fabric to show their love and appreciation for each of those older girls who have influenced their lives. Sure, when we took the quilts off the frames, many had wonky stitches or some that were too big that had to be taken out and redone, but I certainly won't ever spill that to anyone at the quilting bee. Our quilts probably did not look anything like the quilting bees of the American Plains with perfect stitching, but it wasn't about that. It was about bringing together girls and women as a community to accomplish something great. For each of us to use our one twelfth of a teaspoon of honey to make something good together, that stitch by stitch, knot by knot, we could each contribute a small piece to a beautiful quilt that would serve as protection for those girls going out onto the next phases of their lives. For more stories, projects, and quilt tutorials, 
visit us over at www.simplesimonandco.com where you can find scores of quilting patterns and inspiration. Thanks for listening. And if you have a minute, please leave us a comment or a review, especially if you're listening on iTunes. It only takes a few clicks, but it helps us out so much. Now, stay tuned for I've Got a Notion. The straight pin is a notion that most sewists cannot live without. Although for centuries many people have invented ways to secure fabric together, the history of the manufacturing of straight pins in America tends to lead us to a few men who applied for patents and started pin-making companies. One of the most famous is John Ireland Howe. John Howe was a physician by profession, and after watching the inmates' patients at the New York almshouse laboriously making pins by hand-cutting and sharpening wire— he began to explore ideas for a pin-making machine. Howe sought out the help of a printer press designer named Robert Ho to help him invent the machine that would soon become one of the first to make straight pins out of a single piece of wire. Howe obtained a patent for his machine in June of 1832. After the machine was exhibited at the American Institute Fair in New York City, he was awarded a silver medal for his contribution to manufacturing. In December of 1835, Howe formed the Howe Manufacturing Company. His manufacturing plant was soon manufacturing 70,000 pins daily. However, the packaging step was a slower one, as his workers had to manually insert each and every pin into the paper cards in order to sell them. Later, in 1843, with the help of some of his employees, Howe developed a machine that could not only crimp the paper card— but it could also insert the pins directly into the card, eliminating the human step and making the process of manufacturing pins so much quicker. Although Howe's process of making pins was a good one, the nickel coating on the outside of the wired pins was not perfect, and some of the pins would rust as electroplating was not yet invented. To help remedy this, tailors or sewists of the day would clean the rusted pins by rubbing them back and forth into a bag of emery grit to clean off the bits of rust. Today, this bag is known as the forebearer to another one of our favorite sewing notions, the pincushion. 